0: Welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie, and this is episode 350, A Tough Canute to Crack. This show is ad-free due to member support, and as a way of thanking members for keeping the show independent, I offer members-only content, including extra episodes and rough transcripts, and you can get instant access to all the members' extras by signing up for membership at the thebritishhistorypodcast.com for about the price of a latte per month. And thank you very much to Jamie, Hannah, and William for signing up already. And also, a special shout out to Baby Wolf Hera, who's only about 9 weeks old and I think is probably our youngest member. Welcome to the world, Wolf Hera. Okay, so we've got another mystery on our hands. We have a missing year. And I don't think the year was missing because nothing happened. Now, as we know from previous episodes, things in 1031 were getting a bit ropey, especially in Norway. Canute's son and his ex-wife, having just been handed the reins of the region, were making some particularly bad decisions. And making matters worse for Canute's fledgling empire, England was also starting to get pretty busy. In the previous year of 1030, King Canute and Citric Silkbeard, the King of Dublin, had launched a raid on the Welsh. And this Citric was almost certainly the same one who had been appearing as a witness in Canute's charters lately. And his presence in the English court, combined with this joint raid, suggests that Canute was making efforts to expand his influence over Dublin, in addition to his power in England and Scandinavia. But that's not all that was happening. A monk by the name of Ralph Glaber, who was writing at about the same time as these events, tells us that England was locked in a protracted war with Scotland. And that's a drum that I've been hitting repeatedly throughout this series. And you might have been wondering why they were fighting. Well, we're not told specifically, but it's quite likely that it was over what Canute was always fighting over. He wanted to be in charge, and he didn't like it when people said no. Ralph also tells us that Duke Richard II of Normandy had brokered a peace between Canute and Scotland. But here's the thing Richard II died in 1026. So this mediation must have happened before that year and thus well before 1031. And making matters more complicated, we have records of conflict between England and Scotland that continue well after 1026. So it appears that this war with Scotland was durable, likely going hot and cold numerous times. So given all of this, you'd imagine that when the scribes got to 1031, they'd have quite a lot to say. But if you look at version C of the Chronicle, you'll find nothing. The scribes just skip year 1031. But thankfully, there are other versions of the Chronicle, not to mention other documents. So we still have some idea of what was going on. But remember, empty years are often clues in and of themselves. Now, versions D and E of the Chronicle tell us that Canute returned to England, and as soon as he did, he went straight to Christ Church in Canterbury. And this was becoming a bit of a thing. You go to sea, you make it back, and then you go thank the old fellows over at Canterbury for talking to Big J and making sure that the boat didn't sink. Canute was a man who liked to keep the bases covered. And actually, even when Canute's ship did sink, as was the case when he journeyed back from Rome, he was still so grateful to Canterbury for just surviving that he organized that corpse-stealing caper from one of Canterbury's rivals. So these monks were his boys. And in the case of this last trip, not only did he make it back, but the boat made it back too. So Canute couldn't thank the monks enough. And as such, he gave them the profitable harbor at Sandwich, including all the rights contained therein. And this functionally made Canterbury a local trading power. And just in case that wasn't enough, Canute also gave them some of the surrounding lands. And he measured those lands in the weirdest and least efficient way possible. He waited until high tide. And then Canute placed a man on a ship. Canute then handed this dude a couple of taper axes. And he had the ship sail all around the harbor. The man was instructed to throw the axes out onto the shore. And wherever the axes landed, well, that was as far as Canterbury's land rights went which, you know, is totally how you want to handle administration of a kingdom, by throwing axes from a boat. Now, sadly, there aren't any other public policy issues that Canute could have turned into something fun like an axe-throwing competition. and We know that because there were no other records of anything like this. And the scribes tell us that shortly after this matter was handled, Canute boarded a boat and f***ed off once again. And that meant that England was once again left in the care of Godwin. And likely joining him at court and learning the ropes of rule was Godwin's young son, who would have been about 11 years old at this time. His name was Harold Godwinson. And meanwhile, on the boat, Canute was on the move. And versions D and E of the Chronicle tell us that he was headed to Rome. But there's a small issue with that. First, there are no contemporaneous accounts reflecting this visit. And second, it was a weird time to leave England. Things needed to be handled. And not only did he leave, but he was going to Rome? Why? What was the political or military goal of such a voyage? Even more perplexing to scholars is the fact that nothing seems to have come from this trip. There was no papal decree or similar result that you would expect out of a trip like this to Rome. Even more strange is the second part of this same entry in the Chronicle. The scribes tell us that Canute didn't just go to Rome. He also went to Scotland. And I don't know how good you are with geography, but Rome and Scotland aren't exactly neighbors. Adding to this strangeness is the political reality of what was happening between England and Scotland at this point. I mean, Canute hadn't just left Godwin in charge of a kingdom— He left Godwin in charge of a kingdom at war. And sometimes that was an unfortunate necessity. For example, when Canute had to handle military matters, like when he was fending off rebellion in Norway and Denmark. But leaving your underling in charge of a war just so you could jet off to a vacay in the Mediterranean, well, that really seems out of character for Canute. And then there's the cherry on top. The scribes of version D and E tell us that when Canute went to Scotland, which they say happened sometime after his trip to Rome, apparently he accepted the submission of Kings Malcolm, Macbeth, and Imarch. So here's the question. What the f- actually happened in 1031? Well, first, there's the chance that the scribes just completely screwed up the dating. In fact, we are certain that they messed up at least part of the dating on that entry because they also claimed that Duke Robert of Normandy, who was a certain William's dad, had left for Jerusalem on that year. But we know that he actually doesn't take that trip for another three years. This entry is clearly a mess. But what about this business about a trip to Rome? And what was really going on with Scotland? Well, it is possible that Canute took a second trip to Rome, but it's highly unlikely. The more plausible explanation is that the scribes made a dating error, just like they had done with Robert of Normandy. And that is the conclusion that many scholars have come to. But that being said, it doesn't mean that Canute didn't board a ship. As you know, Canute had already engaged in a joint naval campaign with Citric Silkbeard the year before. And historian Benjamin Hudson argues that Canute had actually sailed into the Irish Sea to join his ally, Citric of Dublin, and then carried out a joint campaign against Scotland. And that is plausible, especially since we're told that soon after Canute's voyage, he went to Scotland and accepted the submission of Malcolm. And this reference to King Malcolm was likely referring to King Malcolm II of Scotland, the same king that our monk, Ralph Glabus praises for his resources and his strength of arms. And that could certainly explain why Malcolm was able to maintain such a long war with a growing regional superpower. The Chronicle also tells us that Malcolm was joined by two other figures, who the scribes also label as kings. One was Macbeth. And yes, almost certainly that Macbeth. Now Macbeth's family ruled over lands in the area of Moray Firth, and as far north as Sutherland and Caithness. And it's possible that from the English perspective, he appeared to be a king. But in reality, he was just an incredibly powerful lord. He would become king, but just not yet. Not yet. We're also told of Imark. And this may have been a reference to Ekmark Ragnalsson, who might have been ruling the Isle of Man and part of Galloway at this point. And he was also technically not a king, just a powerful lord. though. Like Macbeth, he would eventually become one. And given such a momentous event, the submission of the king of the Scots and multiple powerful lords, you'd expect to hear more about this than just a couple of lines in an otherwise cramped and confused couple of sentences in just two versions of the Chronicle. This whole situation is odd, and it's possible that this was understated because the submission actually didn't last all that long. Furthermore, on the scale of submissions by Scotland, this one left much to be desired. Malcolm really didn't give Canute all that much, essentially just a promise of peace and friendship, which was a far cry from what previous kings had extracted from the Scots. Remember King Edgar the Peaceable, where the lords of Scotland rode him around on a big ship and promised to fight for him on land and sea? Now that is a submission. So perhaps this just didn't stack up. It's also possible that this was just a lazy entry where a bunch of events got sandwiched together and all these events happened earlier and because the fighting kicked off again, it really didn't matter all that much. It's genuinely hard to say. And like I said, much of what was happening in Scotland is a mystery. In the following year of 1032, we finally get a concrete entry. We're told of a great wildfire that was so destructive and raged for so long that nobody living could remember a worse fire. And the scribes record that it, quote, did great damage in many places, end quote. And we can take that to mean that it raged through multiple shires. And as more and more people around the world can now tell you from experience, It's possible that this great wildfire was actually multiple fires that started in different places and eventually merged together. It would have been terrible, and many would have lost their fields, their homes, and even their lives. Furthermore, the existence of such an enormous fire also suggests that England was dealing with a drought, which also would have devastated the region. So things in 1032 were bad. And don't forget that the king's son and his ex-wife were still up in Norway irritating the locals during this period. It was just one of those years, you know? And truthfully, the only bit of good news was specifically for Canute, as 1032 was the year that the bishop of Winchester, Elfsy, died. Which wasn't exactly good news, but it did leave a vacancy that Canute was able to fill with his own priest, Elfwin. And as such he could further secure his influence over the church. But when a dead bishop is your silver lining, it's not a good year. And as for the following year, well, that one was so good for Canute and his dynasty that the scribes didn't even dare talk about politics or even current events. Instead, they just included an obituary for a bishop and left it at that. But they weren't the only ones writing. And when we look at what William of Jumiege had to say, it's easy to see why the English scribes kept their mouths shut. Do you remember Edward Atheling and Alfred Atheling? They were the sons of Athelred Unred and Emma of Normandy. Well, when Canute took the throne of England, Edward and Alfred survived, having fled into exile. And they were children at this point, not to mention the scions of a disastrous and hated monarch. So the dynastic threat that they posed to Canute was pretty limited. Or at least, that's probably how it seemed at the time. But even if you don't know much about English history outside of this podcast, there's a good chance that you've heard of Edward already. He'll eventually become known as Edward the Confessor. Now, we don't know precisely what happened to Edward and his brother immediately after their exile. But we do know that at the time, Edward was at most 14 years old and was probably only 12. So that made him young, but not too young to have been able to make a play for the throne. And yet, when his father died, there were no attempts to proclaim him king. Instead, his mother, Emma, married the man who defeated their father and took his throne. A throne that could have been Edward's. So we're left wondering, did Emma lack confidence in her young son? Did he show that he was lacking ambition? Was he unable to inspire people to come to his cause? Or was she trying to protect him and felt the cause was hopeless? We don't know. We're not told. Though I should point out that later accounts, including the 12th century chronicle of Ely Abbey, claim claim that Queen Emma didn't want Edward to be a king. She wanted him to be a monk. However, those accounts smack of motivated backfill to satisfy the need for religious continuity. Rather than being a reflection of Emma's intent or Edward's desires, the church likely just wanted to explain his confessor status. And actually, events in Edward's life completely undercut this story and make it quite clear that Emma had no interest in her son being a monk. Moreover, Edward had plenty of opportunities to become a monk if he wanted to, but he never joined any religious community or religious order. Furthermore, you have the fact that Edward was Emma's firstborn son, and no English monarch has positioned their firstborn legitimate son for the church. Not one. Moreover, Edward repeatedly appears in Athelred's charters all the way up until Athelred's fall, which suggests that he wasn't being positioned for a life in the clergy. He was being prepared for rule. In fact, Edward was even sent by Athelred in 1014 as his father's emissary to negotiate his return from exile. The nickname that you know him as, Edward the Confessor, is almost exclusively medieval brand building. It's not a reflection of his lifelong convictions or his life path. And the truth is that while we can't know why Emma didn't press her son's claims during the aftermath of the fall of Athelred, We can be relatively certain that it wasn't because he was super religious and destined for the church. But whatever the reason, his claims weren't pressed, and Edward and his brother were forced into exile. And when they arrived in Normandy, they were two adolescents with a dead father who were now orphans because they'd been disinherited by their own mother when she up and married their enemy and left them to fend for themselves. How do you even begin to cope with something like that? Add to this, that the boys really didn't have any roots. While we don't know precisely where the brothers were at any given moment, by looking at Edward's social connections later in his life, it appears that he was in Normandy and possibly other parts of France, but never in one place. Rather, the evidence suggests that he was regularly on the move while growing up, because he knew people from all over. So despite their noble status, And despite the fact that they likely had a rather cushy existence, they still were functionally homeless orphans. Now, as the boys grew up, they were educated in the Norman tradition. Not as monks, not as churchmen, but as nobles. They were brought up as knights. And contemporary accounts of Edward reflect his martial attitude. Now, why raise him for war? Well... It was likely linked to the same motivation that led to so many courts of powerful French nobles welcoming their presence. These boys had a claim to a very powerful throne, and no one would profit from a kindly bookish exiled noble. They needed a warrior who would take the throne and then reward their friends for their service. And actually, history shows that time spent in exile often teaches things like opportunism, flexibility, and caution. Furthermore, exiled people are often ill-treated, or at the very least, the objects of exploitation. And these are experiences that lead to cynicism, suspicion, and hypervigilance, which might not make for the happiest of lives, nor the best of friends, but they can be very useful traits in 11th century cross-channel politics. Edward was being molded into a conqueror. And by supporting him, These nobles were ensuring that if successful, he would be in their debt. And looking at later records, Edward did indeed acquire a lot of debts during this period. Though despite their precarious position, it appears that Edward and Alfred still held their most powerful card in reserve. Neither married while in exile, choosing instead to keep that possibility as a carrot. Now that doesn't mean that they were celibate, of course. These were two young and privileged men. And the truth is, we don't know how many bastards they might've had during this time. But for the most part, that was how the boys lived their lives while Canute was going about building his empire. And that brings us back to William of Jumiege. You see, he tells us that Edward and Alfred weren't just getting close to random assorted French nobles while they were in exile. They were getting close in particular to the new Duke of Normandy, their cousin, Duke Robert. They were so close, in fact, that he started to invite them to his court. We start seeing their presence recorded in 1033, and who knows how long the men had been meeting prior to that. And it's easy to see why they might have been close. They were all pretty close to the same age. By this point, Duke Robert was about 33, Edward was about 30, and his younger brother, Alfred, was about 28. There's also the issue of proximity. These young men have been kicking around the regents' courts for a decade and a half, and anyone who's worked in an office knows how proximity can impact opinions of others, for better or for worse. And in this case, it seems to have been for the better. Because by 1033, Duke Robert was firmly on Team Edward. He was such a fan, in fact, that he wrote to his uncle Canute and told him that he had an idea. Canute already had plenty of territory and plenty of crowns. Norway, Denmark, and parts of Sweden were answering to him. And it looks like Scotland, the Isle of Man, and Dublin were also on that list as well. So did he really need England? Why not give it back to the English and put Edward, the rightful heir to the English crown, back on the throne? And that was pretty bold. But boldness alone wasn't going to convince King Canute. So the request was refused. But this was Duke Robert. The guy who had launched a rebellion against his own brother because he wasn't satisfied with the line of succession. The guy who brought war against an archbishop who also happened to be his uncle. The guy who kept fighting even after he got excommunicated. Canute might have been the second most powerful figure in Europe. And he might have been family. And he might have already shown all of Europe what happens when you challenge his supremacy. But Robert didn't give a f-. Robert was the Duke of Normandy. And according to William of Jumiege, he was dead set on putting Edward on that throne. So he started to construct a fleet at Fecamp. And the sons of Athelred were there, helping out. And preparing to lead edward and alfred also were reacquainting themselves with the duties of rule witnessing important documents while they waited robert had ships he had an army and now he had the rightful king of england and his heir ready to lead a glorious conquest the norman invasion was on no not that norman invasion if you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me at the British History Podcast at gmail.com. And if you'd like to become a member, you can do so over at our website, the British History Podcast.com. Thanks for listening.